This podcast is brought to you by Watch City Research, your user research partner. Check out watchcityresearch.com for insightful blog posts and to learn more about our UX research services. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another edition of the 97 UX Things podcast. Dan Berlin here, your book editor and host. Uh, And this week, I am here with Becca Kennedy, who wrote the Include Non-Users in Your User Research chapter. Welcome, Becca. Thank you so much. Um, Thanks for joining us. And uh, if you could just take a moment to introduce yourself uh, and uh, what you do. Sure. Um, So my name is Becca Kennedy. I live in Albany, New York, and I work as a UX consultant and freelancer through my own solo consulting company, which is called Kennison. So primarily I do design research, um, plus some, some UX writing and content design. And I do work with all kinds of companies from small businesses to really to fortune 100s in all different industries. Um, that about sums that up. What else? There's other like identifiers. I'm a millennial. I'm <laughs> a Virgo, which means I like clean and tidy spaces. I and have a PhD. PhD. What, what is your PhD? I was going to say I have four cats before I mentioned the PhD. <laughs> Most yeah, importantly. My uh, PhD is in human factors psychology. Gotcha. Yeah, and so uh, a good segue there. What was your career trajectory? How did you, you know, discover and get started in UX? Yeah, this is always a fun question because in UX it can vary so widely. So I feel like I moved into UX kind of the old-fashioned way, which was through academia um, rather than a lot of people arrive through design among many, many, many other things. But Um, So in college, I majored in psychology, but I was really a little bit all over the place there. So I minored in French. I almost double majored in sociology, but I was like one class short and thought it wasn't worth it. Um, But I was kind of that person who was excited to pick out my classes for the semester because I took a lot of extra courses completely out of curiosity, not even thinking that I eventually would need to pay back my student loans. But <laughs> I liked to learn is is basically what mm-hmm. I'm getting at. I took a lot of extra courses like intro to Spanish and the history of New York City and things that were totally not necessary. Um, but when I had to think pragmatically about kind of how I wanted to eventually get a job, I, I took a careers in psychology course. And I learned that industrial organizational psychology or IO psychology mm-hmm. um, was something that sounded interesting and like something I would enjoy. So studying, you know, how people work, hiring, training, that kind of thing. Um, and I learned that typically it only requires a master's degree. So I thought I wanted to do that. Took an IO psych course. And there were maybe like two class periods that covered human factors psychology, um, which started as kind of a subset of IO. And human factors is basically the academic study of how people interact with things, how people interact with technology. I know you know this. Not everybody does, especially those who are newer to the field. Um, So it's really that academic side of UX. And... um, You know, I learned that would mean a PhD and not a master's degree, likely. But my introduction to human factors was through a professor who had previously worked at NASA. So I thought that sounded like the coolest possible job, right? So I did apply to PhD programs. I luckily got into one, um, which was in Virginia. 
And um, maybe two years into that program is when I discovered user experience proper. So mm. the things I liked most about human factors, um, more of the applied human factors is already applied as far as academia goes, but even more applied than that is kind of this user experience side um, and designing in a more like consumer everyday space, as opposed to human factors tends to be more like safety critical. Um, so that seemed exciting. Um, seemed like it would be a better fit for me in a way I could be a little bit more creative than I that could be in academia doing like experimental research. So the bridge from human factors to UX was usability testing. Mm -hmm. So I did as many of those studies as I could while I was in grad school. Um, when I was in my fifth year of my PhD program, I was doing my dissertation and I moved back to Albany, uh, New York, which is where I'm from. Um, and after I got my bearings here, I started a consultancy in UX. So that was kind of out of necessity because there weren't really any jobs here for me. Mm -hmm. um, so it was a little bit earlier than probably I would have liked. I knew I wanted to to go solo at some point. It was sooner than I probably would have planned. But my first clients there were local startups. Um, then I started working on projects like for New York State, because we're the capital. Um, and then I started partnering with other agencies um, and other like freelancers to to make more and more connections and kind of do yeah. more and more projects. So that's kind of where I am now. Um, so now I totally love what I do as a consultant. Um, I get to learn new things all the time, um, stay curious about things. And now my goals are about just like fine tuning that and getting like my dream clients and yeah. maybe even working a little bit less and enjoying being self-employed. That actually came up in our first, and thanks for all that. Thanks for all your background. That actually came up in our first chat, uh, the one with Darren, about um, uh, always be learning. And that mm -hmm. in, in UX, that's the wonder, one of the wonderful things about UX is that we're always learning because there's always new ways to be looking at things and always new things to see how the UX should be or could be. Mm -hmm. uh, and then we're very lucky in that regard. Definitely. I love that about our field. Mm -hmm. um, great. So... Um, we heard about you and your, your career trajectory, starting with academia and running your own business for quite some time now. Um, how about your, your chapter here? So including non-users in your user research. Can you tell us about that, please? Totally. So when I came up with this topic as something to write about, I was thinking about things that are often not obvious to people. And this is definitely one of those things that has come up over and over. So a lot of times within companies, there's a false idea of user research being the same as customer research, mm. um, you know, where talking to current users is great, but that's one piece of the whole research mosaic. Um, so it's really not obvious to companies who really like their customer surveys. They love net promoter score. They love doing that work internally, um, maybe because it's easy, maybe because they just haven't thought beyond that. Um, and truthfully that, is a big part of it is understanding, you know, current pain points of your actual users of your product or service. Um, but that's also pretty limiting. So I noticed that a lot of companies and stakeholders kind of stop there. Um, even if they think about doing research beyond that um, and actually recruiting, it seems, I guess, like it's more of an investment, um, more difficult. and 
yeah, maybe a little bit it is, but the outcome is so much more well-rounded than only talking to people who are already using a product. Gotcha. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? So what makes it more well-rounded? What additional angles or insights do you tend to get? Yeah. In my chapter, I mentioned a few main things that come up when um, explaining to people the value of researching with non-users. The first is that talking to people who don't use a product or service helps you understand why people don't use something. So Mm. for example, they might not know about it. There might be just kind of a marketing or a value proposition issue there. Um, They may use a competitor um, and competing products might not even be the things that the business thinks are direct competitors, but Mm. they just might have totally other processes. So I think especially in software, um, it's kind of a joke that like your software needs to be better than Excel because (laughs) so many people will fall back on Excel. And if it's not worth learning something new, you Mm -hmm. know, people can fall back on some of those other tools um, that might not even be direct market competitors. Um, And even if they know about your product, some people might just not be interested in it. Mm -hmm. And that's helpful to know, right? So um, I think about, I've done work on, you know, electronic patient health records, for example. And I always think of my own doctor who will kind of brag and say, like, I don't do any electronic health records. I pay a fee every year to not do it uh, because I think it makes doctors look at their screen more than having a conversation with the person. So that uncovers just this whole other problem Mm -hmm. space of designing for kind of the bigger ecosystem rather than just like, how do you make the patient records themselves easier to use, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of that that first thing is just understanding why people aren't using your product. Great, great. And and, and I've also heard people talk about the marketing angle of it too, Um, Mm -hmm. hearing what the, the prospects want to have in the product and what's most important to prospective customers. Um, n- not concentrating on a list you may have or current users, but the actual behaviors that, you know, recruiting by the actual behaviors that people are doing. Yeah, that's definitely true. And I think <laughs> you can only understand so much by looking at the behaviors of your current customers. So there's mm. always that, definitely that perspective angle. Um, and your current users are biased in some ways because they already know the product or service. So typically, that means they already like it if they're using it, unless, you know, it's something that their company makes them use. Mm-hmm. Um, but users, as as we all are, as people are, are change averse. So if you're thinking about redesigning something or, or fundamentally changing something that people use, their reaction might be overly negative and you might get a more rounded out understanding of potential redesigns by by broadening that scope and talking about people who use competitors or or any of those other kinds of like groups of non-users mm-hmm. um are there ways that folks can be thinking about their non-users to, that would help them uh, recruit them it definitely helps to understand who you want your users to be um mm-hmm. so some of that comes down to that screening process um and defining that in a way that you you know who you want to talk to. Like, so when you're looking at your research questions, it kind of always comes back to this, right? So when you're creating a research plan, 
Hopefully that's based on specific research research questions, so specific answers you want, mm -hmm. which will let you know whether that's a question for current users or whether that's a question outside that scope. Um, and that leads to a question, a question there of do you treat users and non-users differently in your studies at all? Do you have questions that you only ask one or the other? And, and if so, how do you deal with that data? Yeah, that's a great question. So when you're talking to current users, um, you're asking about typically experiences they've already had. Um, so that approach is a little bit different in that you can ask them about like specific examples or like what was the last time you used this feature for? How did it go? Um, whereas research questions that are more about, for example, learnability, hmm. um, or onboarding for your product or service, you kind of have to talk to someone who has not gone through that process yep. um, or observe them, right? Going through that process of signing up for something or learning how to use something, um, getting first impressions. Uh, that reminds me of that trend with weddings of like getting that <laughs> photograph of the first look of like, yeah, usually it's like the groom seeing the bride for the first time. Um, but you only get one shot <laughs> to right. like capture that moment. So yeah, any of that kind of like first impression stuff that could get into branding that could get to all kinds of different mm. interesting things. Yeah. I love that because there's so much more overlap in UX and marketing these days, especially with the, the, the C combination of CX and UX and mm -hmm. our ability to find to increase business ROI by including non-users, collecting market, you know, good qualitative market data, market research data is definitely a win-win. Yeah. And being able to collaborate with those partners, mm. right? You know, the marketing team, um, training people, wh whoever it is, um, is just helpful long-term in building mm -hmm. these relationships and kind of accomplishing multiple things at the same time with your research, that's where you're going to create the most value. Yep. How about finding uh, the right participants um, with customers? It may be quote unquote easy enough to mm -hmm. use a list or something like that, but how do you find the right folks who are not customers? Yeah. So I did mention having a screener that's very specific about who you think your potential users are. Um, what their behaviors and attitudes might be, that sort of thing. Working with a professional recruiter might be useful for this kind of thing. Um, you know, working with them with the screener to <laughs> choose people who you don't easily have access to um, can definitely make that process easier. Um, yeah, it's. I mean, recruiting itself is just its, its own beast yes. <laughs> of a topic for yep. sure. Um, but the other thing I would say about that is, is when you do recruit people, um, it's important to give them whatever information they might need to know upfront. So being non-users of your product, you might need to explain a little bit of the context, um, any jargon, like anything like that upfront to create a research session that, um, is useful instead of just struggling over things that maybe aren't helpful Right. Data wise, yeah, that's a great point. Of the assumptions that we make that people may uh, of things that people may know that customers may know, but non-users definitely not. 
And to mm-hmm. your point, I always make the joke that recruiting is the worst part of the job. You know, we want to make sure that we have the right people in the door to get these important questions answered. And if we don't have the right people in the door, you know, it's worthless. So we got to make our, sure that they are right. And so, yes, recruiting is its own beast. Yeah. And knowing good recruiters is like, they're worth their weight in gold. Like I really, I love those people because I don't want to do it. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Well worth the uh, the money there. Mm-hmm. Um, all right. Any other thoughts from your chapter before we uh, turn to our next topic here? No, that about, that about summarizes it, I would say. Okay. So um, we'll close out here with some advice for listeners, for either folks breaking into the field or continuing with their their uh, career. What's a, what's a piece of advice you'd like to convey? I would like to suggest that everyone tries harder to be themselves. Um, so our field has space for so many skills and interests and personalities, um, and you don't need a particular education or particular experience. Um, I think actually, in fact, we need more diversity of lived experiences than we currently typically see. Um, we see a lot of, of folks who kind of went through, you know, maybe became like product designers and then and then switched into UX. And that's great. But um, there are also like journalists who become UX practitioners. There are all kinds of different ways in. So I definitely hear from a lot of people who want to get started in UX and they are hoping I can give them a specific path, (laughs) you know, like a specific course, a specific boot camp, even a specific book. And there's no single way to kind of get started or or progress, um, which I kind of take to be a good thing. So there are always maybe some barriers to entry, but there are so many ways into UX and so many different paths to kind of take once um, you kind of get your bearings and figure out what you like most about it to specialize. Um, so just think about who you are, be yourself. Um, what are your own strengths and interests, right? So it, it, I, like I said, at this point, like my goals are to get like some of my dream clients of like... Um, Video games is one example. I'm actually working on a project now that's video game related, which is great. But like, you know, urban design would be cool. Theme park design would be cool. Mm-hmm. So there is space to like no matter what it is that you care about, um, whether it's like the industry that you want to work in or the specific skills you want to offer, um, like there is space for, for so many different kinds of people. So I love it. That's totally what I want to emphasize. No, that's that's great, and I wholeheartedly agree. It's 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 um that's the wonderful thing about UX, and it's the the myriad people that we run into in their backgrounds and the coming mm-hmm. from from different um, domains. Um, it is the 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 best part of of and, and people have the opportunity to follow their passions in UX. Mm-hmm. Um, whether so, I'm a researcher. Others are designers. Others like content strategy or UX strategy. There's a lot of options in terms of where to focus, but also the domain. What domains do you want to be? If you want to work in many domains, you can work for an agency. If you love finance, you can go work for a company like that. So mm-hmm. even you know it's a, it's the it's a career with many many different opportunities and. and directions. Yeah. And, and that's so cool. And so that's, what's so good about it. Like you do have to, I would say like have an open mind and be a good communicator Mm. and a good collaborator, but like there are no other like 
you have to be able to do this type of things. Like you don't have to be able to code. If you like to code, go for it. Mm. Um, I at one point thought I had to learn Photoshop. So before Figma, before Sketch, when it was probably 2012 and I, I knew I wanted to work in UX, I was like, oh no, I have to learn Photoshop and become good at Photoshop. That's not true. Like yep. <laughs> there are enough people with who are really good at different aspects. So find the thing that you like most, you know, Writing could be your thing. Product design could be your thing. Um, research could be your thing. Data analytics. Like, yeah, as long as you are interested in improving things and helping people genuinely, <laughs> yep. you yep. can also kind of create your own philosophy. Um, and yeah, we only benefit from having more and more diverse people. So yeah, be yourself. I love it. Great. Well, Becca, this has been a wonderful conversation. Thank you so much for joining me today. Um, and thanks again for writing your chapter in the book. And um, yeah, and thanks to our listeners for uh, listening today. And thank you, Dan. The 97 UX Things podcast is a companion to the book 97 Things Every UX Practitioner Should Know, published by O'Reilly, and all book royalties go to UX nonprofits. The theme music is Iron Lung by King Gizzard and the Lizard Wizard, and I'm your host and book editor, Dan Berlin. Please remember to find the needs in your community and fill them with your best work. Thanks for listening.